Welcome to today's edition of Feet to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. Great to see all of you. All right, let's bow in a word of prayer. We'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this time and for this opportunity to get into your word. We pray that you would guide us. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight as we look at your scriptures, as we do this uh, verse by verse, walk through the book of Ephesians, bless all the other Sunday school classes as well, and the preaching of your word here at Grace Bible, which is the means by which we are edified, the gospel goes out, lives are saved, and disciples are made to the ends of the earth. Lord, thank you for our uh, commissioning and charge, and may you bless this time. Um, here in this class. Thank you for this letter. We give you all the praise and glory. We love you and we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Let's get started right away. Um, we're going to uh, hopefully start right on time every day and just chug right along. This is the book of Ephesians. Today is an introductory lesson, the first chapter, first 14 verses. If you want to turn there to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this is called God's Electing Grace. I do apologize. My voice is a little shot. I've been had some sort of cold or something. I don't know why I can't get rid of. Um, all right, here we go. Background of the letter to the Ephesians. Everybody with me? We're going quick. Background of the letter of the Ephesians. So the author of the book of Ephesians is Paul. We know that from verse 1. The date of Ephesians is around A.D. 60 to 62. This is during Paul's Roman imprisonment. A.D. 60 to 62. The origin is from Rome. In chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about his imprisonment. Uh, His first imprisonment is detailed in Acts chapter 28. That's where the book of Acts ends. And this is one of his prison epistles. Can you guys hear me okay? Cool. I feel like I'm straining my voice. Prison epistles. Colossians, Philippians, uh, Philemon, and Ephesians would be the prison epistles that he wrote when he was in prison in Rome in his first imprisonment. The carrier was Tychicus, if I'm saying that right. Uh, we know that from verse chapter 6, verse 21. Likely being carried along with the book of Philemon and Colossians. So Tychicus was probably carrying all three letters. He was accompanied by Onesimus, who was the slave from the book of Philemon. And this explains the similarities with Colossians. Because there's a lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians. If they were written at the same time while Paul was in prison, um, that would explain and also that they were carried together. The recipients of the book of Ephesians were the churches of Asia Minor that included the Ephesians, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, If you're looking at the map, um, if Greece is here and Turkey's here, the Aegean Sea, Turkey, it's on the uh, east side of Turkey. Uh, Sorry, east side of the Aegean Sea on the west side of Turkey, across from Greece. If that made sense. You got Greece, you got Turkey, Aegean Sea, and Ephesus is right on the coast there on the Aegean Sea. Um, Now, the church of Ephesus may have been the initial recipient. And this also historically is considered by many to be the other letter referenced in Colossians 4. So in Colossians 4, Paul says, make sure you read the letter in Laodicea and then um, uh, in turn have them read your letter also. Send your Colossian letter to them. So we don't know what that letter is to the church of Laodicea, but historically it's many consider that to have been the, the letter to the Ephesians. 
Um, but on the other hand, it may have first gone to Laodicea, and I'll explain why I'm camping out momentarily in this confusion with, with where it was actually going. The reason is, is because the words in Ephesus in verse 1 are not in most uh, earliest manuscripts. So it's not the Bible has error, it's just the words to the, to the saints in Ephesus is likely not there. And the arguments against it being in there, besides the historical uh, manuscripts that we have, is this. The, gener- the Ephesians has a very general purpose and message. Uh, it has a more formal tone. There is no controversy or problem addressed in a specific church. You know, the Corinthian letters, he's talking about specific issues in the Corinthian church, um, the Galatian churches. Uh, Ephesians doesn't really have a particular problem he's addressing. There aren't very, very many endearing words. Uh, the phrases are rather distant, you know, are hearing of you, things like that. Whereas he did spend nearly three years in Ephesus. If you go to his missionary trip, third missionary journey, Acts chapter 19. Uh, yeah, Acts chapter 19. He was there for years in Ephesus preaching one of his longest church missionary times. Um, then he met with the elders in Acts 20 and prayed with them. Paul had a really, really emphatically close relationship with the Ephesians. So this would seem strange that it has such a formal, distant, general tone if he was writing it directly to the Ephesians. So it was most likely an, uh, an encyclical letter to go around all the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, regardless, the association with Ephesians is here because it's one of the foremost of the Asia Minor churches. Ephesians, we know, is re- uh, mentioned in Revelation 2. Um, hence, the words eventually were included. And we wouldn't look at it as a mistake or an alteration of the Bible. As the letter was being cycled about and scribes were rewriting and copying it, one of the copies went where? To the church where? Where to go? Stay with me, guys. Come on. We got a, a lot of information. In Ephesus, right? So the scribe sending it to Ephesus might have rightly written to the saints in Ephesus. So it's not an error uh, or a mistake in God's word, but it's a true statement at some point. So whoever precisely first got the letter, it was to the churches in Asia Minor, Minor and uh, primarily the people in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city known for the temple of Artemis or Diana, pagan city, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it's a big city. We good? That's it. Background of the letter. All right, we got to go right into the text. Am I, you guys with me? Am I losing you? Okay, good. I love those answers I'm getting. All right, good. So, question that we're going to ask of the text today. How did we get here? You and me. How did we get here? The church baptized Christians, confessional Christians, living as outsiders with a brazen hope for a coming glorious kingdom, inheritance, and resurrection. How did we get here? And here is our thesis today. It is because of God that you are in Christ with a steady hope for future glory. It is because of God that you are in Christ with a steady hope for future glory. Let's read Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. So please open up there if you haven't yet. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, the ones in Ephesus, which likely is not in the original, and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to sonship or adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he graced us in the beloved, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he overflowed to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure of him which he, which he put forward, which he pre-planned in him, to the, to the uh, administration or to the dispensation, to the plan of the fullness of the times, to bring all things together, united all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon earth in him, in whom we have been made heirs, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the one working all things according to the counsel of his will, For us to be, to the praise of his glory, the ones having first hoped in Christ, in whom also you, hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him also having believed, were marked, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the deposit or guarantee of our inheritance to the redemption of the possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. Did you hear that? That's good. (laughs) All right. Introductory comments on verses 1 to 2. This isn't the main part of the lesson today. This is just introductory comments on the first two verses, and we'll start with verse 3. Comments on verse 1 to 2, to the saints, grace and peace. We preach to the saints. We preach to the church. This is to whom Paul is writing. The job of the local church is to preach to the church. 1 Corinthians 14. For her edification and discipleship, we are not to concern ourselves with how will unbelievers take this? How will this be received? How will they hear us? How will it sound or come across? Who is in my audience? We don't concern ourselves with that. We speak prophetically, a truth-telling, not forth-telling. We speak prophetically to God's church, and God accomplishes his work. Notice Paul says, I'm writing to the saints. The church is the audience with the hope that unbelievers hear and join the church. So we aren't more evangelical sometimes and more in reach at other times. We are the same at all times. We don't craft our message or tailor the message to a particular audience or remain sensitive of receptivity. Careful how that comes across. We preach the whole counsel of God to the whole church at all times, unashamedly, without reservation, without flinching, without alteration, and God will honor his own word and do his work. He will take care of his work through his ordained means, preaching. Amen? That's what we do. And God's tone, second observation, to his people is so full of affection and kindness. Verse 2, grace and peace to you. That's the start of the letter. Dear church, you begin in your relationship with God on a right footing, in a right posture before God because of Christ. Isn't that encouraging? The start of the letter. To the saints, grace, mercy, peace to you, dearly loved. 
That's a great intro. Some theological considerations of this passage, very cursory. This is, in fact, you hear pastors say this all the time, what I just read to you, other than verses 1 and 2, starting at verse 3. It is, in fact, one sentence. What I just read to you is one sentence. I won't get into all the grammar, but it truly is, and I didn't believe it myself till I saw it and read it. And believe it or not, the King James Version does the best literal job, as usual. I'm not suggesting you all switch over to King James. It's clunky, it's hard to read, and sometimes is detrimental because you actually don't get the sense and the idiom of what Paul, the writers, were trying to say. But if you want a, the best like word-for-word grammatical translation, as clunky as it is, from the Greek, get a King James and read it. And it, it reflects it very well. Um, every connecting word in these verses is either a preposition or a relative pronoun or a participle referring back to previous remarks. So it is, in fact, a remarkable theological work of art. It is a philosophical masterpiece, those 14 verses. What do we find in here? Trinitarian theology, verse 3. Christology, verse 4, before the world's foundation. We see adoption in verse 5, or rather sonship. By the way, do not be deceived by weaker politically correct translations that say sons and daughters. The Greek word for adoption has the word son in it. It's sonship. So don't be politically correct with the translations. There is Calvinism, God's elective choice. The whole passage is a Calvinist passage, and it's killing me not to do a full-blown five-point presentation of Calvinism this morning, but that is not the trajectory of our time. I would love to do that, but we don't have time, and it's not the point of the passage. But since we're there, verse 4, he chose. Verse 5, he predestined according to his kind intention. Verse 9, it was his good pleasure that he put forward in Christ. 11, we were predestined according to his purpose. We also see in verse 7, propitiation or substitutionary atonement, blood redemption. We see justification by grace alone in verse 6 and 7. Can I say this? If you want a synopsis of some of the most cardinal doctrines of the faith, Folks, be encouraged and look no further than the first 14 verses of Ephesians. It is all there. Let me let that linger. Use it. Teach it to your kids. Take them here and feed them here. Whenever their minds or their, excuse me, whenever their minds or their tender little hearts doubt, even as young adults, whenever you doubt, dear Christian, Feast here again and again. Take your college students to this. Sit down, remind them, read and reread the blessed doctrines herein fixed for all time for the edification and preservation and glory of the church. This is your glory, dear church, these first 14 verses. It's so good. Be encouraged in your faith. Okay, let's get into our points of the passage this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, rest in God's love. Rest in God's love. I want you to see the extent of God's love in this passage. Its potency, its efficacy, specificity, direction, infinitude, its timelessness, its zeal, its extent, God's love to the uttermost, its happiness and gratification to God. Did you hear what I said? God's love is happiness and gratification to himself. God's, the love, his love's intentionality. His love's wisdom, its purposefulness, its all-encompassing generosity. This passage is drenched in God's love. Let's look at a couple excerpts. Verse 3, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he chose us from the foundation of the world before time. Verse 5, 
He chose us to be holy and without blame, innocent. Do you realize his goal from the beginning was to declare you innocent? That was God's preordained goal. They are sinless. Wow. Verse 5, he did this with love or in love. Verse 6, he's predestining you or choosing beforehand. That, that word, I'm sorry, that's also in verse 5. That word uh, in verse 5 for, that we translate predestining you, it has the prepositional prefix on it from the Greek meaning before. Okay, so, so well, the reason I'm stopping to say this is when, when Christians say we're predestined and we, we espouse Calvinism, we're not making it up. It's literally in the word, in the etymology, in the word itself. The, the Greek prefix before, and then the Greek word that's used is the word from which we get the English word horizon. He, he before horizon you. What does that mean? The word in the Greek, the verb that we say predestined, means to define or to, to mark out the boundaries or limits of a place or thing. It means to determine or to appoint or to decree, ordain, declare. In other words, what has God done with the horizon? He's fixed the limits of the sky and the land. Fixed. He's decreed it. When you look out, you see the limitations of God's creation, the boundary markers. Well, he pre determined, pre-marked you out in love for Christ. You see that? He pre-ordained you. He pre-decreed you. And there's other uses of that verb throughout the New Testament that I'm not going to get into, but it has that sense of marking you out ahead of time, hence predestination. It's an unchanging decree. So he before marked you, he pre-appointed you, he pre-ordained, set limits around you as his, those are mine. And he predetermined you to himself, it says. He took you for himself. You were an object of God's ambitious desire according to his good pleasure, euphoria. Euphoria, it's a a similar uh, root word in the Greek where it says according to his good pleasure, it's his euphoria. He's excited about it. He, verse 6, he, I'm just going through and telling you places where we see God's love in this passage. It's all over. You're still with me, right? Stay with me. Okay. He graced us in the beloved. The love that he asked for Christ extended to us. Verse 7, he gave us not just grace, but rich grace. Verse 8, it's abounding. He overflowed this grace to us with all wisdom and insight. He decided on this course to love you. Again, by his good pleasure, it made him glad and made him happy and it made him euphoric to do this to you. He made us heirs in verse 10, princes, every one of us. Verse 11, he preordained us again, pre-marked us out, same verb. In fact, it was his purpose, it was his divine counsel and his plan for this. And he worked at it, it says in verse 11. He labored at it, he worked all things in the entire universe for this, for you being brought into his dearly loved possession. Verse 13, it is a gospel of our salvation. Verse 13, he's given us his Holy Spirit and sealed us with the Spirit. Verse 14, he guaranteed a coming inheritance and we will finally be completely his sole possession in glory. If this is what it feels like to be a cherished bride, I'll take it. And that's not intended to be a joke whatsoever. Ladies, that's what it means to be a bride. I'll take that. If this is what it feels like to be a cherished child, 
I'll take it. Can you imagine being loved that hard? Would that every father could love their kids that hard, even a fraction of it? Son and daughter, return to me. I am obsessed with you. Your presence with me, my child, is euphoric. I can't wait to have you. I will do anything to have you forever. That's God to us. He says, I am planning every detail of the next 6,000 years and counting just to have you as my treasure forever. To hand my inheritance over to you and to live forever with you. The finest of food, the most joyous fellowship, the grandest of castles, the sunniest days and the happiest home, and the longest and the fullest Sunday dinner. Feast with me, son. Come and sit a while, and we will enjoy our company together. Right alongside your eldest brother. Oh, he's a good man indeed. In fact, he helped prepare this whole meal just for you. And my table is wide and long, and we will laugh together all evening and right on into forever. How beautiful is that? Amen. That's adoption. Christian, do you know how significantly God loves you and relentlessly takes pleasure in you? And with what determination he takes pleasure in you? And as I said, a side note to women, let's just be done with feminism once and for all. It's, it's so disgusting and demeaning to women. Woman, do you realize what it truly means to be the loved one, the object of affection, as opposed to the one loving? To be the object of affection is a wonderful place to be. God was happy to love you. He was delighted, in fact. He can't wait for you to show up at dinner. You know, and here's another thought. Do you know fatherhood comes at a cost? 2 Corinthians 12, we won't turn there, but it's a reference for you. Fatherhood comes at a cost. A man loves being a dad, truly. But he much more, listen now, finds pleasure in being a son, perhaps selfishly. At his table, a dad has to labor for his kids, share his plate, endure their questions, patiently suffer their weaknesses and infirmities and their trouble. In short, a dad has to sacrifice. But a son, as a son... A man may feast. He receives blessing upon blessing. Sonship comes at no cost except to the father, who is the one lavishing his richness and overflowing goodness all over his children. The son just sits and basks in the enjoyment and the contentment and the security of it all. You see that? That's adoption. Take it, receive it, rest in it, and don't look back. Now, all of this is obviously reminiscent of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I know the question pops in. This is a great description of God's elective grace from the beginning of time and his adoption of us. But what about the other guys? That's the question. What about the people who aren't in God's family? Well, you should know from the Christmas Eve devotional, the first problem with questioning God is, number one, who are you to talk back to God? Right? We see that all over the Bible. But number two, it's also an irrational question. When your dad loves you, are you asking, well, what about the other neighborhood kids? 
When you love your wife, is she asking, well, what about all the other women? Since you don't love them, let's cancel this. It's irrational. He set his affection on you. And, number three, go invite them. God has invited the others. God is limitless. The offer goes out to the ends of the earth. God is willing that none should perish, 2 Peter 3. Have they not heard? Paul asks in Romans, yes, they have heard to the ends of the earth. Romans 10, 18, Psalm 19, 4, they have heard. And finally, I'll give you this. The question has merit from an earthly perspective. So my question back, what about the other guys, is what are you doing about it? The, the solution is not this. Well, what about the other guys punches a hole in the whole gospel presentation? The answer is not, well, forget the gospel. It's too unfair and too unreasonable. The answer is, you're right. What about the other guy who's missing out? Somebody go get him. Hence, missions. Christian, don't let the question of people being outside of this divine fatherly love cause you to irrationally deny it to yourself. Receive it, and then go be an emissary to others concerning it, who are the orphans in the world. Folks, if the realization of God's elective grace and love dampens and diminishes your confidence, you are sadly misinterpreting Scripture, sadly missing the abject misery of your own condition, and you are sadly, pridefully, having way too high a view of yourself. You are considering your situation to be a lot better than it actually is. You should rest in God's elective love, revel in it, and then go spread it. This should drive missions, not dampen our zeal. It's the only hope we have. Listen, it's the only hope we have that God might actually determine to set his affection on men. That's the only hope we have for his good euphoric pleasure. All right, number two, so rest in God's love. Number two, direct your life to the glory of God. Direct your life to the glory of God. The passage starts in verse three with a blessing toward God. And I know everybody always tells me, don't make apologetic statements, so I won't. And everybody says to me, uh, don't give caveats because I'm known for that. Where's Boomer? Is he here? Oh, I'm going to get him for not being here. Uh, so I'm not going to get Look, it's only 12 weeks. Ephesians warrants more than 12 weeks. So I'm steamrolling through because we've got to get to every verse, and, and so we have to do large chunks. That's why I'm going so fast. If we could do three verses at a time, I'd go slower, but we can't. I divided it up, so we're going fast. So stick with me, okay? Um, so the passage starts with a blessing toward God, blessed be God, and then explains why we, ble- we are blessing God. But still, the point is, of the entire passage, blessed be God. Render praise to God. Render him what is due. It's a recognition of what he has done. That's what blessing God is. And then uh, giving him your devotion and your loyal obedience. The first few words, blessed be our God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. The first few words form the overarching proposition of a 14-verse sentence. It's the top of the pyramid. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one blessing us with. And then he goes on from there. Also, we see the verses refer back, uh, we see the verses revert back to this bless God theme with a three-time repeated phrase or some variation of it that's embedded in the passage. What's that phrase? To the praise of his glory or to the praise of the glory of his grace. Well, what is to the praise of his glory? What is, in verse 5, to the praise of his glory is his preordaining of you to himself. That is, election is to the praise of his glory. And it's the same in verse 11. 
having been pre-appointed according to his plan to the praise of his glory. And in verse 14, the redemption of the possession, that is God's possession, which is you, is for the praise of his glory. He is culminating, listen, he is culminating creation in that moment when he finally takes us as his property, his possession, fully and completely, i.e., the moment when we are resurrected and we shed this broken vessel and are transformed forever, his taking us as adopted sons to be his treasure forever and his ownership of us glorifies him. They are mine, he says. Look at them now. Finally, sinless, perfected, glorified. I have them at last. And so we can say this with Paul, that the point of election is praising God's glory. Romans 9. What if God did this? Paul poses this rhetorical question. Excuse me. In Romans 9. What if he did this? Made and endured wicked mankind over all these years. What if he did all of this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? What if he did this all for his glory? Answer, he did. He did. So, having been so loved and appointed and kept for a future inheritance, where ought your allegiance to lie? Where should it lie? Obviously with God. Solely and entirely with God. But listen, the passage isn't so much a tone of imperative. That's later in Ephesians. Like, do this. It's not the... You don't get that tone from this passage. Rather, the tone is, this is the natural response to this magnificent gospel. Praise God. Bless Yahweh for all he has done. Like, who doesn't want to go to what I just described that God is inviting you to? Not just inviting you to, he appointed you for. And saved you for, and elected you for, and sealed you for, and guaranteed you for it, that coming kingdom. I mean, only allegiance makes sense. It's natural. Isaiah 63, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. I mean, that sounds like the New Covenant, and that's from Isaiah. By the way, I'm not going to read it, but that's just after those famous first verses of Isaiah 63, where it says, Who is this one coming down from the north with his garment stained with blood? It is I, mighty to save. I looked and there was no one. So my own arm worked salvation, and I've trampled the nations in my wrath. And then it says, let me tell the good deeds of the Lord and what he has done for me. Wow. This is all God's zeal for you so that you can praise him forever. Psalm 126 says similarly, when the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. This makes obedience 
way more reasonable and rational and easier, at least mentally. And with regard to motivation and transforming our own willingness, look at this all-encompassing landscape in verses 3 to 14. Why not commit your life to God? All things are headed to the grand moment of presentation to a magnanimous, beneficent, happy creator and father who will celebrate and revel in the glory of it all and in your enjoyment of him. Illustration. Dad, isn't this the best ever? Dad, isn't this the best ever? Oh, yes, son. Yes, it is. It certainly is the best ever. Can there be any more gratification than that? You're a parent, many of you. You know those moments. Dad, that was the best Christmas ever. Dad, that was my favorite vacation ever. Dad, thanks for letting us play video games until really late last night. It was the best ever. Dad, I love being with you. That was awesome. And the father answers, yeah, it was awesome, wasn't it? It's going to stay that awesome forever with me. So we said rest in God's love. We said direct your life to the glory of God, to praise him for this. And finally, fix your eyes on the coming redemption. Fix your eyes on the coming redemption. To start, all of this, this whole passage, is in Christ. He is the fountainhead of this unfolding plan to save us and give us this wonderful adoption and inheritance and place in God's family. In fact, in Christ, or some variation or some reference to it, is found in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, and 13, twice, at least 12 times. We see this reference to in Christ. Apart from Christ, the mediator, the redeemer, the elder brother. Did you hear that familiar reference? Your elder brother. Apart from him, none of this is possible. Well, what are the aspects and the implications of the redemption we see in the passage? Redemption, obviously, is buying out. Well, we see substitutionary atonement in verse 7. This redemption is by blood and death. God purchased us out of the slavery of sin with a blood payment. Then from that blood payment and redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins. Also, verse 7. We have the giving or the deposit of the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives new birth, new spiritual life. We have adoption into the family of God, having been so sealed and marked by election and by the Spirit. Hence, Limited atonement, I said I wouldn't do a presentation of the five points of Calvinism, but if the Father elected his own, and you were marked in verse 14 at the end of one long 14-verse sentence, then for whom did the Son die, church? The elect. That's it. I didn't do a presentation on Calvinism today because A, it's not the thrust of the passage, but B, it's not necessary. If you don't see it, you're not listening. And you're not reading the real meaning of the words, some of which I've broken pieces for you. The Father elected you. The Spirit sealed you. The 
Father elected the church. The Spirit sealed the church. Christ died for the church. And we see in the redemption a coming inheritance of new resurrected life and promised the promised wealth of the Father given to us forever. Here's a great long quote from MacArthur. Let me read it about this in his commentary. God looked down the corners of time even before he fashioned the earth. And he, sorry, I was supposed to say quarters. God looked down the quarters of time even before he fashioned the earth and placed the sins of his elect on the head of his son who took them an eternal distance away. He dismissed our sins before we were born and they could never return. Hundreds of years before Calvary, Micah proclaimed, who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea, Micah 7. That is redemption. Now, the passage, as I said, is centered on praise to God, blessed be God, and it all comes out from there. And the praise rises to a high point of anticipation and climax. What is that high point in anticipation, that climax? What is the climactic praise focused on? When does it happen? Toward what is the the climax of the praise headed? Verse 14, the final words, the redemption of the possession. The redemption of whose possession? God's possession. It should be pointed out again that the supreme glory of the gospel is seen in this. Stay with me. The supreme glory of the gospel is seen in this, the resurrection. The resurrection. This is our greatest apologetic and defense and evidence. The resurrection. All the praise is climaxing this point. The redemption of God's possession. Us. This is our greatest defense and apologetic. The resurrection is our greatest polemic. It's our greatest offense. The resurrection is our greatest hope. It is the greatest convincing argument and plea and the greatest persuasive force of the gospel, the reversal of death. Did we not sing at first service and you will second service? He lives that death may what? Die. That is our glory. Christ is the first fruits and us to come after. This, it's all over the New Testament. This is our goal, our upward call of God in Christ, Philippians 3. This is the mystery revealed, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1. It is where we are seated, hidden with God in Christ, Colossians 3. If the resurrection isn't, tomorrow we die. Paul fought for this doctrine specifically among the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. It was Paul's argument before the Athenians. It was Peter's defense of Christ's Messiahship that he is alive. It is Paul's most true and reasonable plea at the end of Acts. And it is the highest motivating factor toward devotion and obedience. As I've already mentioned, the richness of God's great reward in the very true and real life to come. That is the highest motivating force for the Christian. And that's why the passage rises to that point. Blessed be God. Why? Through all these details of the redemption. Why? Until finally the redemption of God's possession. You with him forever resurrected in the kingdom to the praise of his glory. 1 Timothy 6. This is a great verse. And very good for us luxurious Americans. Let us put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, 
command them, the rich, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Why? What's the motivation? In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. This is a great phrase. Listen. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So they can take hold of the life that is truly life. I've said it so many times to you, dear church, in teaching. Do you know the feeling when you wake up from a dream, good or bad, and you're like, oh, oh, now I'm awake. That was so real. Like the dream was so real. But now I'm awake. That's going to be the resurrection. We're going to be like, man, that was so real. But it was just a dream. And now I'm truly alive. We're dead and dying. Every one of us are dead and dying. And when we come face to face with him, and we're transformed, and he finally redeems in front of the whole world, as he treads down the nations, and redeems us his possession, and transform us, we're going to finally gasp a breath of air, and say, wow, I actually am really alive now, for the first time. That's the motivating force. Listen, church, all signs point to then. All signs point to then. And this passage must thrill us into radical devotion to gospel living in light of God's election, in light of the finished work, in light of the security and the good deposit. And as we will soon see next week, the power at work in us and the promise of completion. All of this motivates us to radical devotion. A man once titled his journal, not me, a man, once titled his journal, The Short Today and The Long Tomorrow. That's the thrust of this passage. And I might add, the glorious long tomorrow to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us most certainly in the beloved. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for these thrilling words that Paul gave us from Ephesians 1. And we pray that these things would thrill our hearts. And one of the things that I hope sticks out for the church from today is that you would drive their hearts and minds constantly back to this philosophical masterpiece that you allowed Paul to write to encourage them and their families and their spouses and their children. Let the dads take their kids over and over again to Ephesians 1 and say, son and daughter, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what God has done for you. These are the deep truths of the faith. And do not waver, but devote yourself to a father who's far greater than me, who will never fail and has an inheritance waiting for you. Lord, thank you that we can rest in your love. Help us to do that knowing that your love is irrevocable. Help us to direct our life to your glory as the whole point of Christ's redemption and this whole plan God has sent in motion is for us to enjoy you and praise you forever. And we pray that we would fix our eyes on that coming kingdom, the glorious long tomorrow, because that is the greatest motivating force to bring us to a point of constant obedience and devotion. We love you. We thank you for that rich love with which you have loved us in Christ. To him be all the glory forever. We love you, Jesus, and give you praise, God our Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be blessed, guys. Have a great Sunday. See you next week, Lord willing, and stick around for second service. Thank you.